0: Hey, we're so glad you're here tonight, church family, excited. I know there's a couple new faces, and part of our hope and prayer is, is the ability to have a kid's Wednesday night Bible study. is not just important for them to have something to come and to be a part of and to fellowship and and learn midweek, but also enables more families to be in here, and, and so we're excited for WEBS to start. Obviously, the children are smarter than us, because we have a long title, Wednesday night discipleship. They just say WEBS, Wednesday evening Bible study, so... Maybe, you never know, maybe we'll change the name here too and really mess with everybody. But hey, we're going we're gonna to dive right in. If, if you came in last week and you have last week's handout, the handout back there tonight is the same handout. It's, it's simply in case you weren't here last week or maybe you forgot yours or you accidentally threw yours away, uh, it's to grab it. And, and on that handout, just to save you time, or just a reminder, that handout is basically everything we've covered in here for about the last five weeks from David becoming king uh, to where we will end tonight. What that handout is, is a setting of, a, of major events recorded in Scripture in a chronological order with the corresponding Scripture references in, Samuel's in, uh, in Samuel in Kings and in Chronicles. That is, is what that is and, and how you can use that. For the sake of your tonight, you can just go to the back page, the last page, and you'll see on the, the last page there, 699 to 620 B.C., those two, uh, those two eras, there are what we're going to cover tonight and work to get through. So, if you've got your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you go to Second Chronicles and go to Second Chronicles chapter 33, and we're going to pick up kind of a little bit what we hit last week, just to reset the stage. I want to remind you as we build up to here what we've seen. Is the kingdom divides in in Second uh, Kings chapter? Er, sorry, First uh, Kings chapter twelve. The kingdom divides. Uh, the ten ten of the tribes go and form the northern kingdom of Israel or Ephraim. Uh, their capital initially is at Shechem, and then it's moved by Omri, the father of Ahab, to Samaria. Uh, Judah uh, becomes the southern kingdom, and their territorial lands, as well as Benjamin, stays loyal to Judah. in In both try both areas, you're going to have. Levites, but obviously only the Levites that stay loyal to Judah stay loyal to the proper temple form of worship. Do y'all hear something weird in the microphone or is that just me? If it's just me, that's great. I just want to make sure that I'm not also like everyone's like, we can't hear a word you're saying, Pastor. And then I'm just up here sounding like the teacher from Charlie Brown. Um, no, no, it's all good. I just want to make sure. I just don't want to, you know, just call the awkwardness out for what it is. Uh, Rob, if you would hit that next that next slide, we talked about. Okay, so we, one of the things we've walked through that Northern Kingdom, God brings discipline on their sin in 722 uh, BC. In 722 BC, God sends Assyria. The Assyrian Empire uh, goes and conquers and attacks Israel. You can see that on this bottom part. Here's where where Assyria had gotten to. This is the land of Assyria. Here's Nineveh right here. Babylon, which we'll talk a lot about tonight, is down here. And then uh, if you would go to the next slide for me, Rob. And then, so here you go. So Assyria falls, Hezekiah is on the throne, or Israel falls, Hezekiah is on the throne. Hezekiah is going to be a righteous king overall. He's going to make some poor decisions at times out out of pride, but he's a righteous king overall. God's going to give him, but understand what the southern kingdom of Judah is surrounded by. Here's Judah down here. The rest of these are districts that the the Assyrian Empire is controlling over and is reorganized. Judah is now surrounded on every side. And this is where we pick up here in 2 Chronicles 30. King Manasseh, uh, verse 1, Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king. He reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. One of the longest reigning monarchs uh, in the entire history of all the kings of Israel, united or divided... And as we'll see, he is the most wicked of all the monarchs. It says, he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord disposed before the sons of Israel. He rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had broken down. He erected altars for Baal and made Asherim and worshipped all the hosts of heaven, not just some of the other gods, but any gods you could assign to a star, he worshipped it. Uh, He built altars in the house of the Lord, which the Lord said, My name shall be in Jerusalem forever. Meaning he went in into the temple and he set up altars of pagan worship to false gods inside the temple. For he built altars for uh, all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. He made his sons pass through the fire in the valley of Ben-Hinnom, Practiced child sacrifice, he practiced witchcraft, he used divination, practiced sorcery, dealt with mediums and spiritists. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking God to anger. Then Manasseh put the carved image of the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon in the house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen from all my tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever." Uh, and he goes down Thus, in verse 9, thus Manasseh misled Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to do more evil than the nations whom the Lord destroyed before the sons of Israel. In addition, Second Kings, speaking about Manasseh, uh, is going to say going to say in 2 Kings 21 verse 16, moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood until he had filled Jerusalem from one end to another besides his sin with which he made, uh, besides the sin in which he made Judah sin and doing evil in the sight of the Lord. It also says in Kings, very similar to Chronicles in verse 9 chapter 21, but they did not listen and Manasseh seduced them to do more evil. So here's the, here, just to remind everybody what's going on under Manasseh Manasseh systematically brings about more pagan worship and idolatry and sinfulness than any other king before. The significance of of seduced and influenced is the fact that he's not doing it at the pressure of the people. He's doing it out of his own desire, and he is actually leading and wooing and convincing the people to follow suit. So it's not just that he does it and people follow suit. He is active in his engagement to bring it about. Not only that, you hear about his violence. It's, it's believed, held in tradition, that Isaiah will be martyred by being sawn in half under the reign of Manasseh. It mentions that he leads the people to, to engage in more wickedness than all the nations before him. And I, and I know I've mentioned this before, but if you go to Israel to the city of Megiddo, uh, it's a fascinating archaeological site. There's, I think, 21 different civilizations have built on top, cities on top of cities there, and that is that is a city that was conquered by the peoples who inhabited the lands before Israel. And when you go there, one of the prominent things you'll notice is this giant stone circle. It's this giant stone circle platform. And essentially what uh, those nations did on that platform is they took the priests of their gods and they would bring innocent, um, watch my words in here, uh, innocent young women up and they would proceed to gang assault them. And when he says Manasseh, Led the people to be more wicked than those people. So understand the state of Judah and, and what Manasseh has brought in terms of in terms of a wickedness into, into the land, obviously, completely and totally rejecting, uh, rejecting um. The righteousness of his father. Now, just for the sake of, of being clear, Chronicles is going to mention a moment where Manasseh is captured by the Assyrians and he's taken to Babylon. Ironically, this is before Babylon becomes an empire. He's going to repent of his idolatry. The Lord's going to uh, send him back, and you're going to go. Well, it makes it sound in Chronicles like, um, it makes it sound in Chronicles like Manasseh ends up being good. Or this. Once you remember, Kings and Chronicles are written to two different groups of people, and in Chronicles. Chronicles is looking specifically at the Davidic kings, and it's being written to those who will return from exile as an exhortation to obey. So Chronicles, for the most part, is going to rarely mention all of the evil acts. It's going to try to mention the best act of every king because there's a greater purpose there to the original authors. Uh, Manasseh did have a moment of repentance, but obviously that moment did not mark what his overall reign was. You can have a moment of repentance and turn right back a day later. Here's the results of what happens. Kings says this, uh, 2 Kings 21 again, The Lord, verse 10, spoke through His servants, the prophets, saying, Because Manasseh, the king of Judah, has done these abominations, having done wickedly more than all the Amorites who were before him, he has also made Judah sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing such calamity on Jerusalem and Judah, that whoever hears of it, both of his ears will tingle. I'm going to bring such a disaster upon the people that whoever hears of it, it's going to shock them what's going to happen. And he says this, I will stretch over Jerusalem the line of Samaria. Maybe you remember when we looked at the Northern Kingdom a couple weeks ago, we went to, um, I want to say it's prophet Amos and he mentions the, the plumb line that God was going to stretch a plumb line, which would be a line that you would drop down with a weight on a wall and you would use it to test how sound and straight the wall was. It means I'm going to test them. I'm going to draw that same plumb line over Samaria that judged Samaria and gave them to the Assyrians. I'm going to drop that same plumb line over Jerusalem and the plummet of the house of Ahab. That was in reference to bringing judgment on Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. I will abandon the remnant of my inheritance and deliver them into the hand of their enemies and they will become as plunder and spoil to all their enemies because they have done evil in my sight and have been provoking me to anger since the day their fathers came from Egypt even to this day. So not only is the nation an absolute wreck, not only is Manasseh wicked beyond any king who's come before him and more wicked than any of the peoples who inhabited the land before him. This would mean the priests are being faceless. This this is a horrible time, but it is so bad that God has now pronounced a finality of judgment upon Judah. No longer is God going to play this back and forth game of allowing pain, them repenting, singing. It's done. He's going to bring, for lack of a better word, he's going to bring the boom. He's going to bring it hard. He's going to bring the the finality of the curse that he mentions in the law, and we'll look at that in a second. This is Manasseh, and this is what happens after Manasseh. We're going to see Manasseh's son, Ammon, comes to the throne at 22, and he's going to reign two years. He will do all the evil of his father, Manasseh, and he will be betrayed by some others who kill him, and then the people will kill those who killed him, and they're going to put his son, Manasseh's grandson, Josiah, on the throne. They're going to put Josiah on the throne, and you can find Josiah in 2 Kings 22. You can find Josiah in Second Chronicles as well. Just read you a couple. Well, uh, let's look at him in Chronicles, but keep your hand in, in Kings. A couple key things, J- Josiah. Josiah becomes king, 2 Chronicles 34, at eight years old. He reigns 31 years in Jerusalem. He did right in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the ways of his father, David. He did not turn aside to the right or to the left. What a statement after Manasseh. Josiah comes to the throne at eight. He walks right in the sight of the Lord and he doesn't turn to the right or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was still a youth, he began to seek the God of his father, David. So he comes to the throne at eight. At the age of 16, He, out of his own personal desire, begins to pursue personally the God of his fathers, the God of David, the one true God. In the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places of the Asherim, the carved image, the molten image. And it goes on to talk about, uh, listen to this verse four, "...they tore down the altars of the Baals in his presence." And the incense altars that were high above them, he chopped down. And also the Asherim, they broke into pieces, they ground into, into powders, they burned the bones of the priests on their altars. I mean, they they didn't just remove stuff, they obliterated. And, and as as Josiah 20 years old, he proceeds to bring in campaign to not just toss idols in the trash, but we're burning them to a crisp. There will be no remnant in any way, not a flake of idolatry left. And it's significant, it says they did it in front of him. This is so important to Josiah. Josiah's heart is so driven to, to the one true worship that he's not content to just send his labor force to go do it. He goes with them to make sure it happens. It says, then he returned to Israel. Now, verse eight says this. This again, 2 Chronicles 34. Now in the 18th year of his reign. So now we're, uh, we are 26th. Um, in the 18th year of his reign, when he had purged the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azaliah, and Maasaiah, an official of the city, and Joah, the son of Johaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord as God. So he started to personally, progression, he started to personally seek God. And then he leads the people to, uh, uh, he leads the people to get rid of their idolatry. Now we're going a step further. We got to fix God's house we got to bring restoration to proper worship. So they go, they're collecting money. And, and as they do this, look at verse 14. When they were bringing out the money which they had brought into the house of the Lord. So they've gone and collected money from the people to go repair the house. Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given by Moses. Now, some would say that might just be Leviticus or it might be the whole Torah, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, or Num- Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Uh, either way, they find, uh, they find the law. It says, I found the law in the house of the Lord. So understand this, somewhere in these intervening years, the word of God, the copy of the law You want to know how bad it got? No one even knew where it was. But praise God as God does with his word, even when society rejects, even when there is rampant idolatry, even when he is rejected, he preserves his word. And so they bring it back. They bring it back and they read it. And Siphon read from it in the presence of the king. Verse 18, verse 19. Now keep in mind, this is a guy who's been walking with the Lord 12 years. For the last six years, he's been leading a campaign to obliterate idolatry. This is a guy who's got his act together. Listen what happens when he hears the words of the Lord. When the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And he asked, he said, go inquire of the Lord for me, for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book, which has been found for great is the wrath of the Lord, which is poured out on us because of our fathers have not observed the word of the Lord to do all that is written according to this book. So here's a man who's walking with God, who's taking the hard steps, the hard actions to walk with God. Understand that those steps would be in defilement of his family because the people who come after him, they reject all of his reforms. And when he hears the word of the Lord, he is broken because he sees all the more how ungodly the people have been. And part of reading that, if you'll remember back, I, we won't turn there for tonight because we've got plenty to cover, but if you'll remember back in Deuteronomy, one of the things that God sets up is he's reminding this generation of Israelites about to go in the promised land of the covenant is he tells them, if you're not faithful to the covenant, here's what I'm going to do. And he lists even a progression of, of harder and harder consequences that he's going to bring about. So you can imagine Josiah, as he's hearing this read, realizing, oh yeah, we did that. Oop, That's already happened. That's already happened. That's already happened. Oh my gosh, God's about to level the boom and we deserve it. So that's why he says he's, he's torn. He humbles himself. He sins. So they go Uh, In verse 22, uh, Hilkiah and those whom the king had told went to Huldah, the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Takath, the son of Hashra, the keeper of the wardrobe. Now, she lived in Jerusalem in the second quarter. Don't ask me what the second quarter is. I don't have a clue. Um, And they spoke to her. And this is what she said. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, tell the man you sent to me. Thus says the Lord, behold, I am bringing evil on this place and its inhabitants, even all the curses written in the book, which they have read in the presence of the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me. They have burned incense to other gods that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and it shall not be quenched. So he says, you go tell Josiah all that he heard, all of those curses that he heard read in the book of the law that, that come from covenant unfaithfulness. There is no stopping me. They're all coming. Why? Why? Because the sin has built up so great, this is the only appropriate response. But also look what he says. But to the king of Judah who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus you will say to him, thus says the Lord God of Israel regarding the words which you heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and against its inhabitants. Because you humbled yourself before me, tore your clothes, wept before me, I truly have heard you. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace. So your eyes will not see all the evil which I will bring on this place and on its inhabitants. And they brought word back to the king. So God says, Josiah because you have humbled yourself, because you have so deeply loved me and cared for my word, and you have taken, what I want you to understand is I'm not going to turn back from the punishment on the land, but it will not come during your day because I will honor your repentance and seeking of me. And far from discouraging Josiah in that, it doesn't say what... um, Josiah, you know, doesn't say if Josiah felt good about it or didn't feel good about it or felt kind of good and kind of bad. But look what the response is in verse 31. The king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments, his testimonies, his statutes with all his heart, with all his soul, to perform the covenant written in his book. Moreover, he made all who were present in Jerusalem and Benjamin stand with him. So the inhabitants did according to the covenant, and Josiah removed all abominations from the land. And all this, and throughout this li- their, his lifetime, they did not turn from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. And then both in Chronicles and Kings, it's going to record in some length, not only this, but that Josiah now, having, having corrected the temple, having remade this covenant, saying, hey, we are all gonna step back into covenant faithfulness with God, even though there's judgment coming, we are still, because God is God. And, and, and in this time, he's given this space of grace to respond, not only that, but then they're going to restart the Passover. Understand, there are huge chunks of time where the feast that is so central to the people of God, they're not observing it. And so he's going to reinstitute the Passover. And in this Passover, look, chapter 35, verse 17. Thus, the sons of Israel who were present celebrated Passover at that time. Verse 18, there had not been celebrated a Passover like it in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet, nor had any of the kings of Israel celebrated such a Passover as Josiah did with the priest, the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, this Passover was celebrated. Catch what it says. Josiah takes the Lord's word so serious that when they returned to Passover, they observed Passover in a way that not even David led the people to observe it. So you talk about a contrast, a two-generation contrast, which, by the way, should be a reason why we never give up hope generationally. Understand you can have a righteous generation and the generation their children can completely reject every ounce of righteousness, which is why it should be paramount to us that we make sure we reach the next generation. At the same time, when we see younger generations who are rejecting the Lord when we look at our own generation and see rejection of the Lord, also understand that. How quickly and mightily God can usher revival through one in a generation who's willing to humble themselves and respond, which is why we should never, ever give up. Even though we know we live in a day where one way or other, we are closer to the Lord's return and there will be judgment coming, whether it's in our lifetime or not. Josiah brings this. Now, Josiah's gonna die in battle. What's gonna happen in all of this uh, Rob will you go to the next slide with so this is Assyria at its height uh, and, and go to the next the next one with uh, this is the reign of Josiah so here's here is uh here's the reign of Josiah where they're at um, Josiah actually conquers all this land God really honors him go to the next slide but here's what's going to happen uh go to the next one please During this time, Babylon is going to rise up as an empire. Babylon is going to rise up. Babylon is going to come and begin to attack and conquer Assyria and kick the Assyrian empire to the curb. In the midst of this, the Egyptians are going to go up here to aid Assyria in the battle against Babylon. And, and in this battle, Josiah is going to make the decision. Kings merely records it. Chronicles mentions that according to Pharaoh Necro of Egypt, uh, Josiah it, fighting him is going against the word of the one true God. Um, the point is, Josiah goes out to fight Pharaoh, and in that battle, Josiah dies. His reign comes to an end. But this is what it says. Says it in second in the in the account in Second Kings about Josiah. Second Kings chapter twenty three says Josiah removed the mediums, the spiritists, the teraphim, the idols, the abominations that were seen, that he might confirm the words of the Lord says, verse 25, Before him there was no king like him who turned to the Lord with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might according to the law of Moses, nor did any like him arise after. Understand the weight of that compliment to Josiah. No king before you, that includes David, no king before you has come with such passion to seek the Lord with all their being to honor the Lord's word. It also says, however, the Lord did not turn from the fierceness of his grace wrath, which his anger burned because of all the provocations with which Manasseh had provoked him. And here's the reality. Pharaoh Necho comes, Josiah dies, the people mourn. Jeremiah is a friend of Josiah. It's in Josiah's reign that Jeremiah will come on the scene. We'll look at Jeremiah more here in a moment. Uh, But Jeremiah will come on the scene. Here's the short rundown of what's going to happen. They're going to take, after Josiah dies, they're going to take his son, Jehoahaz, who's 23, and put him on the throne. He's going to reign for three months, and in his three months, he is going to do evil in the sight of the Lord in the line of Manasseh. Even great Josiah, something disconnected to, to Jehoahaz. Uh, three months later, Pharaoh Necho's going to come in. He's going to remove Jehoahaz and take him down to Egypt where he'll die and, and he exits the story. Uh, he's going to take him down to Egypt. He's going to put uh, He's going to put Josiah's brother, Jehoiakim on the throne. Jehoiakim's going to reign for 11 years. You're going to see this in 2 Kings 23 and, and you're going to see this in chronicles as well. He's going to go. He's going to be installed, but at this time, Babylon's going to rise and, and Babylon and Egypt are going to fight. And so he's going to be trying to play both sides. Both are trying to control Judah. He's going to try to play both sides, wavering back and forth. And this is going to build up to chapter 24 of Kings says, in his days, Jehoiakim, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon came up and Jehoiakim became his servant for three years. Then he turned and rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar. And so that's going to be the first time that Babylon is going to come in 605 and Babylon is going to attack Jerusalem. This is the first of three attacks by Babylon against Jerusalem. In 605, uh, Nebuchadnezzar's going to come in. They're going to attack. This is going to be the first wave of exiles that are removed and pulled to Babylon. This is when Daniel will be taken to Babylon. and We'll see more of Daniel. Next week, it's going to be in this time. In addition to Jeremiah, or it's going to be right before this time that not only is Jeremiah ministering before and during, but right before this is when Habakkuk is ministering. So, to give you more context as we walk through. I'm not going to expand more on Habakkuk because we spent plenty of time doing that earlier, uh, earlier uh, this summer. But Habakkuk is in this time. Jehoiakim is going to reign. He's a wicked ruler. He's hostile to Jeremiah. He burns the scroll of Jeremiah's prophecies. And ultimately, uh, he is going to be dealt with by by Nebuchadnezzar. Jehoiakim is going to die, and and they're going to place Jehoiachin. Don't ever name all your sons these names. Both horrible people to name them after and just wretched pronunciation and way too close. Jehoiakim is replaced by Jehoiachin. Uh, He's going to last, he's going to last, Jehoiachin is going to last for three months. Babylon's going to capture Jerusalem. They're going to take Jehoiachin away and imprison him. Now, interestingly enough, after being imprisoned for a while in Babylon, after all this settles down, the king of Babylon's going to really feel good about Jehoiachin and is going to release him from prison and give him a more honored throne than any of his other kings. <laughs> so somehow Jehoiachin ends up uh, becoming this best buds with the king of Babylon. Uh, and that's, that's recorded both at the end of 2 Kings and at the end of 2 Chronicles and the end of Jeremiah. Jehoiachin's going to reign. They're going to remove him. They're going to replace him with Zedekiah, who's his uncle, Zedekiah. Zedekiah uh, is Zedekiah's supposed to be a puppet ruler over Judah for Babylon, but he's going to try to engage in some, some trickery going to reign for 11 years. In 597, Nebuchadnezzar is going to come back to capture Jerusalem and he's going to take 50,000 more captives into exile. That's when Ezekiel will be pulled into Babylon for exile. But then finally, after enough issues, Zedekiah is going to really mess things up. And in 586, and by the way, remember during this time, Jeremiah is also prophesying and part of his prophecy is this is God's discipline through Babylon. Stop resisting. Submit. I don't know. And you got the false prophet saying, Jeremiah's full of it. He doesn't know what he's talking about. And so they're going to resist. And it's going to be under King Zedekiah 586 BC that Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army come and lay siege to Jerusalem. It's going to be a year and a half siege during which time Jerusalem, which sits up on, a, up on Mount Zion above the valleys below it, they're going to build siege ramps over the walls. They're going to completely encircle, and listen to what it says. Second Kings 25, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came. He and all his army against Jerusalem, camped against it, built a siege wall all around it. So the city was under siege until the 11th year of King Zedekiah, And on the ninth day of the fourth month, the famine was so severe in the city that there was no food for the people of the land. Elsewhere, it's going to mention that not only is there no food, but some will turn to cannibalism. Now, understand for a second here, I'll come to this in a moment, but Jeremiah is living in Jerusalem during all of this, seeing this in the streets, seeing this play out. And it's going to be in this siege Eventually the Babylonians are going to come in. They're going to take, once they break through, Zedekiah and his army are going to try to escape. This is all in the end of 2 Kings and Jeremiah and 2nd Chronicles. I'm just going to summarize it for you. He and his army tried to escape. The Babylonian army hunts him down out wet out uh, east of Jerusalem, over here, uh, over here near Jericho. They're going to hunt him down. They're going to kill his army. They're going to take Zedekiah, bind him in chains. They're going to take all his sons, slaughter them in front of him, and then pluck his eyeballs out. So the last thing he sees is the death of his sons. And then eventually they will deal with him. They're going to come in. This is going to be the point that several times they've taken things out of the temple, but this is the point where they're going to go back into Jerusalem. The captain of the guards is going to go in. They're going to remove all the valuables from the temple. They're going to burn the temple to the ground. So you can imagine, you're one of those Israelites. You've heard the false prophets. No, you're God's people. You stand up. Don't don't you submit. Don't you submit to Babylonian rule? You stand up. God is with you, and you just watch His temple obliterated which is the sign of his presence and power. And of course, you're going to know, we'll see it next week, but Ezekiel's going to have the vision while he's out in Babylon, seeing the glory of the Lord leaving the temple, going up the Mount of Olives, because God's protection is no longer there. Of course, just total side note, it'll be several hundred years later when the glory of God will come down the Mount of Olives and go up to the temple to teach at the beginning of Passion Week. And great, great imagery there of of what comes. Ezekiel mentions that at the beginning of his book. And this, this is how the chapter of the divided kingdom ends. Now now the people of Israel, what you have left is you have a few people left there. You have a puppet governor installed by Babylon. You have left the poorest of the poor, it says, to manage the fields and the vineyards. And the rest have either been slaughtered or they have been taken to Babylon. Whereas we'll see next week, most of those who were taken were the best, the brightest, the, the royalty, the powerful, and they are being placed in uh, positions of indoctrination to become people inside of Babylon while the others reside in exile. Now in all of this time, one of the key players that we're going to look at with with the rest of our time is Jeremiah. We've mentioned Habakkuk prophesies in this time. We we, we have walked through the book of Habakkuk back at the beginning of the summer. Encourage you if you got questions there, you can go back and, and listen to those. But Jeremiah, his name means the Lord lifts up. He's known as the weeping prophet. When all of this happens, he is taken against his will in 586 to Egypt, and then we do not know. We assume he dies there. There's various traditions and legends. Some would say he's the one, and he got the ark out and hit it, and uh, you know. And some would say the ark got pulled out by some of the good priests and taken down, and it's in a church in Ethiopia that claims to still have it. Personally, if God's presence left, God, God let the ark fall into Babylon's hands, in my opinion, and it got torn down and used for whatever. But we don't know. But Jeremiah, he's going to write down, he's going to have a scribe, Barak. Some have said Jeremiah of all the prophets is the most reflective of the character of Christ, but I want to understand something as we look at Jeremiah here. Jeremiah, at the end of the day, is evaluated by God as a faithful servant. But if you and I evaluated Jeremiah by most of the metrics we evaluate modern day churches and pastors by, we deem him a failure and fire him because he doesn't have a single recorded convert. Everybody rejects his message. He is lonely. He is isolated. His own family won't have anything to do with him. God forbids him from having a wife because of the nature of God's calling on his life. Which we find here in Jeremiah chapter 1, the word of the Lord, the words of Jeremiah, the son of Hilkiah of the priests who were in Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, to whom the word of the Lord came in the days of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, in the thirteenth year of his reign. It came also in the days of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the end of the eleventh year of Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, until the exile of Jerusalem in the fifth month. Now the word of the Lord came to me, saying, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before, I con- before you were born, I consecrated you. I set you apart. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. Then I said, alas, Lord God, I don't know how to speak. I am only a youth. But the Lord said to me, do not say I'm only a youth. Because everywhere I send you, you shall go. And all that I command you, you shall speak. Do not be afraid of them, for I am with you to deliver you, declares the Lord. Then the Lord stretched out his hand, he touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, Behold, I have put my words in your mouth. See, I have appointed you this day over nations, over kingdoms, to pluck up and break down, to destroy and overthrow, to build and to plant. There's a lot just right there. God says, Jeremiah, you are a person in my eyes, not at the moment of conception, but before you ever even physically existed. Which means, church family, on issues of life, certainly life starts physically in this plane of existence at the moment of conception. But as far as our existence, we're in God's mind before conception ever happens. And the moment of conception is when life happens. Not only that, but it's in the womb that God sets him apart, it's in the womb that God appoints a destiny. So when it comes to issues of life, Jeremiah chapter 1 is absolutely an apologetic to tell us that a human is a human at the moment of conception and has a right, a God-given right to life. And because they are defenseless, we have a God-given responsibility to speak up and stand up for their life. Not only that, but God tells them, since you were in the womb, I I appointed you. I have a calling for you. It means every person, not every person has the calling of a prophet, but there is no person that God has created that God does not have a plan and purpose for. Yet oftentimes our lives are not marked by the plan and purpose of God. They're marked by just the plan and purposes of our own heart. And don't misunderstand me. I don't think the plan and purpose of God is to make every person a vocational missionary. If every person's a vocational missionary, who's supporting the missionaries? But God has plan and purpose every one of us to be a vocational missionary in the sense of wherever he calls us, we're to be ambassadors of his kingdom. And our lives should be marked more by his purpose in our vocations, his purpose in our families, his purpose in our lives, and not by our purpose in society's pressures. Uh, look at his calling. His calling's tough. God says, You're gonna go, you're gonna speak. I'm, i put my words in your mouth and listen to the listen to the summary of, of what his job is gonna be. You're gonna stand over nations and kingdoms to pluck up, to break down, to destroy, to overthrow. I'm not giving you feel-good sermons to preach, Jeremiah. But then look at the back part to build, to plant. Because the end with God is never just with his people, their obliteration. This is God's discipline to bring them to back to restoration. Uh, man, there's so much we could look at in here. In chapters two through six, describe. Judah's unfaithfulness, if you want to really flesh out more beyond just those summaries of when you read, and, they, and the kings did wicked in their eyes, this is the place where if you're reading chronologically, you can jump over here and read some of these chapters and see more specifically some of the things that are taking place. The ways that the people are worshiping idols and engaging in immorality and engaging in witchcraft and engaging in sorcery and, and, and engaging in uh, money uh, money laundering and defrauding and engaging in all these different things. The priests being faithless and, and the prophets being, uh, being, being false. chapters seven through 10, Judah's false hope. Chapters 11 through 20 speak of Judah's impending disaster. And just by the way, as Jeremiah here is basically one person standing for the Lord in the midst of a whole people. I mean, really understand that for a second with Jeremiah. Sometimes you and I feel like when we stand for the Lord in the midst of American culture, we feel like, man, we're really being attacked. You look around the room. Most of you in this room, I know enough to know you have a genuine heart for the Lord. How privileged are we that we've, we've got a hundred people to stand together with? Jeremiah's it. There's no one else patting his back. There's no one saying, good job, prophet. They all hate him. His family hates him. The king hates him. Everybody despises him. His name is trashed all over social media of his day. And the other great thing about Jeremiah is sometimes it's hard. And he says it. Jeremiah chapter 12. He mentions how tough it is. Jeremiah 15. Jeremiah 15 shows Jeremiah became so, uh, so despondent that he considered abandoning his call. And God called him to turn back, to repent from entertaining that idea and to come back. And he does. To stand prophetically is hard. Let's not sugarcoat it. Jesus takes it a step further. He says, if you're going to follow me, deny yourself, take up your cross. Take up a giant sign of torture and shame. That marks you as a criminal and a despised individual of society, and you carry it and follow me. We need to understand, church family, that we do live in a world where following Christ isn't easy, and Scripture never says it is. Scripture does say that God's grace is sufficient and His power is perfected in our weakness, which can't stand up to how hard it is. But we're not called to fit in. We're not called to easy. We're not called to the pattern of the world. We are called to shine as ambassadors. The kingdom of heaven. We find in here, we find in here, I mean, man, just so many verses. Uh, uh, Jeremiah 17 Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, verse 7, and whose trust is the Lord. He will be like a tree planted by water that extends its roots in a stream and will not fear when the heat comes. You want to know how as we see the heat ratchet up in society, how we will not walk in fear, we are going to have to actively walk in greater trust and faith with Him. And remember, faith is not mustering up more belief. It's actually really resting the full weight of who I am on what He says. Conviction, confidence. Confidence says not only that, but in the midst of heat, its leaves will be green. It will not be, that One will, person will not be anxious in the year of drought. But then listen to this, the heart is deceitful, is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Meaning you and I really can't fully understand ourselves. There's a little ad on YouTube for a, for a secular counseling service. They have different things. And one of the ones that's popped up lately, this lady says, I just, what do I want? I just want to know myself. You and I can never know ourselves. Now, it doesn't mean there's not questions we can ask and things we can't probe and guided by the Holy Spirit, but it means understand. The heart is deceitful above all things. We're not qualified to understand the heart. Oh, but wait, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind. I give to each man according to his ways. Our God can. So how does sometimes we need to discern what are my motives, what's going on here, God? We need to do it prayerfully with the Holy Spirit. Who can discern? Of course, chapter 18, the potter and the clay I'm the potter. You were the clay. And again, call back to to turn back and how he can change. Um, You go through here. Uh, Chapter 33. It's a series of chapters promising restoration. And chapter... Chapter 33... find the right verse here, because sometimes even I fail to write the right verse down. Yes, sorry, not chapter 33, chapter 31. Chapter 31, verse 31, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day. I took them by the hand and brought them out of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house after those days. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. That's the covenant we live in, church family. We don't live in the days of the old covenant where God wrote his law on tablets of stone. We live in the day where when you respond to the Holy Spirit's conviction and you rest your faith in Jesus Christ for was the Lord and Savior of your life, when you rest in that, Jesus by His grace saves you. And God in that moment not only fills you with the Holy Spirit, God Himself, not only seals you with the Holy Spirit, but He writes His law on our hearts as He writes our name in the book of life. We're in a new covenant that's far greater. That covenant pointed to this covenant. But that covenant was impossible to keep. We live in a new covenant by the grace of God, and this is pointing to it. But I also want you to see this. Jeremiah, last week, um, last week I shared with you, part, part of what's interesting out looking, especially at, at Judah's kings, part of what's interesting at looking at Judah's kings is in, in the northern kingdom, all the kings are idolatrous. They're all pursuing pagan wickedness. They're all bowing down to false idols. In Judah, you see those kings. But you also see kings who start well, end poorly, and not because they bowed a knee to a pagan idol, but because they bowed a knee to their own self. And so last week, I brought out Isaiah chapter 58 and how in Isaiah 58, the people of God are saying, God, we're seeking you. We want to know you. We want you to be new. We want you to be present. We want revival. We want you. And God says, you don't really want me. You're asking all the right things because it's the right thing to ask, but your hearts are far from me. And we made the point that it's possible for us as the people of God to show up to worship, to say the right things, to do the right things, but our hearts actually be in love with our own idolatry and not God. And if you can't tell, it always works me up because I think it is one of the critical problems with the American church today, both old and young generations. And God takes our idolatry very serious. Our God also takes His patience serious. So if on one hand, here's the strong reality of that message, I want you to notice this. Jeremiah chapter 25. It says, verse 3, "...from the thirteenth year of Josiah, the son of Ammon, king of Judah, even to this day, these twenty-three years, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken to you, meaning the people, again and again, but you have not listened." And the Lord has sent you, all his servants, the prophets, again and again, but you have not listened nor inclined your ear, saying, turn now everyone from their wicked way and from, from the evil of your deeds. Dwell on the land which God has given you and your forefathers forever and ever. Do not go after other gods to serve them, to worship them. Don't provoke me to anger with the work of your hands, and I will do you no harm. I remember when I read that for the first time, I was 21, And I sat there in amazement because so many would say, gosh, the God of the prophets seems so just angry. No, the God of the the prophets is the same God of the New Testament who's holy. And He doesn't put up with sin, especially sin in His people who know better. But then I sat there and I went, oh my goodness, as a 21-year-old, I sat there and went, God didn't make it complicated for His people. He told them what they were doing wrong, and he told them and said, I want you to repent. And he did it for 23 years in this instance. I put it to you today, that's God starting when I was 10 years old to call a church to repentance and giving them until the end of this year to respond before bringing the severest form of judgment. That's an unbelievably patient God. which brings this twin reality. Oh, and by the way, he tells them, I want you to live in the land. If you live in the land and honor me, no harm will come to you. But he says in verse 7, Yet you have not returned to me. The problem wasn't with God. The problem was with the people. And so I say all this to simply say, as, as we as we live in this reality, church family, as we we have to be open to seeing where we as believers, where we as churches corporately have walked in idolatry. Idolatry of self, idolatry of fortune idolatry of prosperity idolatry at a time i'm not knocking hear me please i am not saying something negative about the country but idolatry of the american dream idolatry of health and wealth of power of acclaim and at the same time we have a god who is so very patient who is so very patient and so I know conversations go off a lot when we see times like we do today in, in the nation and we go, well, is this, is this God's judgment finally falling on the nation? Is this God's judgment falling on the church? Is this, this, is this, that? Listen, unless God gives you word, hard to know. What I, what I do know is God really takes himself seriously, so we better be willing to respond to also know how incredibly unbelievable that God is that patient to come after people faithfully over and over and over and over, and over, and over, and over. Because God really does want. He wants every lost woman, man, boy, and girl to come to faith in Him. He wants every one of His children still living in this world to experience the fullness of the salvation He's brought in their life. What a God! What a God! In this same time, Zephaniah the prophet's going to be prophesying he's the great-grandson of Hezekiah. He's going to prophesy the judgment of Judah, the judgment of the nations, and that God will provide a remnant. But as we end here tonight, with these last few moments, there's also another book that Jeremiah writes. It's called Lamentations. It's a book of lament. There are what I call Hobby Lobby verses. And many of them, all of them are great verses because they're God's verses. Many of them, though, sound really good, but are pulled out of their context, sometimes to the detriment of our understanding. One of those is this. Sure, many of you have heard the word, the Lord's mercy indeed never ceases, His compassions never fail, they are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. But did you know that those fall in the middle of Lamentations 3 where Jeremiah is writing as one who has walked with God righteously, who is watching the destruction, who who is seeing starvation and cannibalism on the streets, who is seeing and hearing the siege day and night. He makes this statement as he walks with God and the people glare at him and snare at him and are angry at him for pronouncing this judgment. He says things like, God has made me dwell in dark places like those who... Long be dead, I cry out for help. He shuts out my prayer. He bent his bow. He sets me as a target. The arrows of his quiver pierce me. They mock me all day long. He's broken my teeth with gravel. He's taken my head and crammed my teeth down and just grinded them on the gravel. My soul has been rejected from peace. I've forgotten what happiness is. My strength has perished. So is my hope from the Lord. Maybe that's how some feel as you look out at the world today, whether that's the world today or whether that's the situation you face. He says, remember God, my affliction, my soul bows down a sign of submission. This is what I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. The Lord's mercy never ceases. His compassions never fail. They are new and fresh every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have hope. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that that person waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It's good for a person to bear the yoke in their youth. Let them sit alone and be silent since God has laid it on them. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach for the Lord will not reject. Forever, for if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his lavish, his abundant, his abounding loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly or crush, or, or, or grieve the sons of man. Here is a man who, at the call of God, has endured nothing but hardship and pain. Who, of in himself, says, "I don't even know what happiness is, but this is what I call to mind: Lord, your mercy, your covenant." Loyal, loving, faithfulness, it never fails. It never stops. It never runs out. If I use everything I think I could use today, it's brand new tomorrow. What a promise. And church family, if we are going to live in the days that seem to be approaching, even if they're not approaching and things go back to quote unquote normal, if we're gonna live with the hope of heaven, it's gonna be because we recall who God is, to mind just like that. What a God. Holy, patient, merciful, faithful in His steadfast loving kindness to His covenant that He has written on our hearts in which we were purchased, not with gold and silver or land or universes or worlds, but with the precious blood of Christ. Amen. Praise the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for who you are. Thank you for your faithfulness. God, you're faithful and we're not. There are some in our family who are walking well with you. There are some in our family walking well with you who are struggling from hardship. Lord, may they be filled with hope as they recall to mind and know the newness of your mercies every morning. God, there are some in our our midst that that know you, but but we aren't walking well. And on one hand, we need to, to heed the clear warnings of passages like Isaiah 58. We need to receive your conviction over our idolatry. We need to repent, but we need to do so also understanding, Lord, that for all of us in this room, there's been many times And we've not honored you habitually. And you haven't lowered the boom. Because you are a patient God who always prefers that your children come back to you in repentance. So, Lord, may we be a people who worships you for your patience. May we be a people who delights in your patience. May we not be a people who puts your patience to the test. But, God, may we regard your kindness well. Lord, may we be a people who really do love you with the entirety of our being. God, and may we be a people like Josiah, who with the entirety of our being love you and desire to honor your word. But Lord, may we also be a people because we live in a different day than Josiah who when we die, what is said is that they they love the Lord with all of their being. But may it not be said that there was no one else like that after us, but may it be said because of what you do through us that there were many after that like us. Disciples who made disciples who made disciples by your grace and your power, Holy Spirit. God set our hearts ablaze. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.